Welcome to Hacker in the Fed, presented by Naxo. Naxo is a premier cybersecurity and investigations firm whose mission to fight cybercrime aligns perfectly with Hacker in the Fed's content. On this episode, we interview Lance Talbin of Austin Bird about being a cyber lawyer. The FBI shares the tactics of the ransomware gang Scattered Spiders. A company pays the ransom, and their data is exposed anyways. Alpha Black Cat uses government regulations to further pressure a victim to pay. And the FCC is trying to make SIM swapping more difficult. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks that caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity and founding partner at Nexo. Come check out nexo.com. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsignor, friend and podcast co-host. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collide in June 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, the show is back, and it's great to talk to you. Woo! Yeah, boy! I'm back. I'm back. Well, yes, I'm back. I'm glad that you're back. I'm very happy to, that we're here. We had a great conversation prior to recording. So I am full of energy. I'm ready to go. So well, we've had some great conversations, even our time off, and, and we really need to address the show being off for a little while. So Hector and I did 56 straight episodes. We didn't miss a week, dropped a new episode every Thursday, and then life caught up to us. We, we got some sicknesses. We got some family issues. We just had to slow it down a little bit, and I really wish we would have made an episode so to, to warn people that, that that was happening. But it just life came to at us too fast, Hector. But we're back on track now. Uh, it's going to be slow for the next couple of months, you know, as we get through the holidays and get going through things. But Hector, I really, really appreciate our audience reaching out to us. And I tried to get back to everybody that emailed us and said, oh, the show's coming back. We're not gone. Um, you know, Joe reached out. All the bigwigs, Dustin Wick reached out. All the loyal listeners, but that, then they're from day one. So, you know, it was great to hear from them. And I hopefully, you know, um, the, the rest of the audience will stick with us as we kind of find our way uh, and, and try to get back onto a regular schedule or, or, or a modified schedule. Um, but, you know, it's great to put a show together again, Hector. Yeah, absolutely. I had folks reach out to me on LinkedIn. I sent you a couple screenshots. Um, I had folks reach out to me by email, messages. Um, they're like, hey, was, is everything okay? Is Chris okay? Um, you know, we haven't seen an episode come up, and I'm like, yeah, just uh, for those of you that are in the security industry, whether you're on the defensive side or offensive side, you guys know that Q4 is where it gets crazy, okay? For example, I've been doing nonstop pen tests for the last six weeks because there, there tends to be a, a tendency <laughs> in, uh, in the overall industry, the technology industry, where if a company has regulatory requirements, compliance requirements, to do some sort of offensive uh, assessment, they need attestation letters, they need pen tests, assessments, whatever, right? Audits. They tend to save it for the end of the year for budget reasons, okay? 
not because they're lazy, but budget reasons. And so between catching a really bad flu, I've been sick for like three weeks, guys. Uh, and if you see me out on the road, I've been doing a, some travel. You may have run into me. You may have seen I've been walking around with tissue and like I'm coughing while I'm wearing a mask, et cetera. But aside from that, there's also like with the nonstop work. So yeah, we had to take a break for a little bit. But hopefully in Q1, we're back in action, baby. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I just appreciate everybody reaching out to us. And, and and you are right, Hector. You know, secondary was the show. First was, hey, is Hector, is Chris good? You know, are you guys doing all right? Is did, did I miss something? Guys, we're doing great. Like we said, traveling, works busy, couple sicknesses in there, family issues. The show's there. We're, we're going to get going again and, and have it there. So I love doing the show. I love talking to Hector. I love getting the information out to you guys about what's happening in the cybersecurity. Um, and so we, we just, you know, we just needed a quick break. What else has been going on with Hector? Anything else good with you? You've been doing some traveling. Yeah, bro. So for those of you that don't know, you might have heard that I've been traveling over the last three or four months to Puerto Rico back and forth. I might be moving to Puerto Rico to kind of jumpstart that security industry. So if you're out there and you're listening, expect me because I'm coming. It's very exciting news. Oh, yeah. Very exciting news. So I'm just kind of formulating and situating and coordinating. I'm networking. I'm meeting people. Um, so last time I went out, uh, that was a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I flew out to, to participate in the ESA conference. Um, and ESA conferences are like uh, the information security and security auditors conference. You may see it in, in different states. It, it was very cool. In fact, I got like a standing ovation. It was a very good topic on uh, demystifying pen testing because, you know, even though pen testing has been around for 30 plus years now, uh, people really don't understand it still, right? Uh, especially from the client's perspective. So yeah, great speech, met some really good people. Oh, by the way, Chris, I got some news for you. I met with uh, a couple of your former colleagues out of Puerto Rico. They have a cybercrime division. And I met, yeah. I met with the Puerto Rico's FBI's uh, really nice lady. I, can't, I don't want to mention her name, but no. uh, she was awesome. So she's still, she's still an agent there? Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, no, I've done a, a couple of big cases out of Puerto Rico, and I always love traveling down there. It was the only time in my whole entire career that I got to use a government card to buy a car. <laughs> well, I was nice. in Puerto Rico, yeah. So uh, we we rented some cars down there for an operation, and then someone threw a cinder block through the windshield uh, and tried to hurt us on our way out, and so the car became evidence of a federal crime. Uh, so I got to go to the the rental car company and buy the car. Was it like? Because I know like like Amexes don't have limits. Was it like an Amex situation, or how did that work? This was a government credit card, friend. I don't think we really had limits. Oh. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Good way to put it. <laughs> I mean, I had to get some approvals, but sure, you know, it was still yeah. still a fun time. But yeah, no, I can't wait till you get down to Puerto Rico because I'm going to come move in with you. Hey, I, I wouldn't. I'll, I'll make sure I get a nice place, uh, and there's going to be room for you. But yeah, no, I, I met with the the, the, the cybercrime lady out there. Very very awesome, and she was like, "Hey, heck, the island is is booming right now." Uh, and I think she meant crime, cybercrime. <laughs> oh. She's like, "It's booming out here." So. You know, you should definitely come out here. Absolutely. I think you can, you can make an impact. I said, all right, cool. I think about it. How long have you lived in New York? It's a great question. So I moved from Puerto Rico to New York at the midway of the Gulf War. It was at 92. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I came back to New York in 92. At 95, I was already online, right? And then, uh, 
So I've been back in New York since then. Well, I lived in Massachusetts for like two years, and I lived in Ithaca, New York, for like a year. But for the rest of the time, it was New York City. Well, that's uh, it's scary to move, uh, and and but but it's exciting. So uh, it's exciting for me to have a place to stay in Puerto Rico. All right, Hector, let's get into some news now, some big cyber news. Um, and I know, you know, this is going to be a little strange because this is, you know, 2023, the year of the insider. Um, and, and there has been a lot of insiders, but a lot of the news stories these days are ransomware. Uh, everything seems to be coming up ransomware these days when you, when you look at things. So uh, the first story we're going to talk about is the FBI shares tactics of the notorious Scattered Spiders Hack Collective. Uh, and so the FBI uh, and the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, we talk about all the time, um, they have decided that they're going to give out some details about the threat actor that's called Scattered Spiders. And you guys, I'm sure, have read about this ransomware group. Uh, their most famous hacks are the MGM hack and the Caesars Casino hack. Other hacks they were part of is the MailChimp, Twilio, uh, DoorDash, and Riot Games. Um, they're a loosely knit hacking collective um, that goes that now collaborates with Alpha, which is also known as Black Cat. You see them on the news all the time, uh, a Russian ransomware operation. Um, and then, Hector, you may know Scattered Spiders by the other names they go by. Really? Other names? Yes. I would other love names. names. Can you imagine cybersecurity that this one group has a ton of other names to it? What a surprise. That's unthinkable. <laughs> uh, they're also known as uh, Octopus or Star Fraud or UNC3944. That's a catchy one. Um, yeah, Scattered Swine, Octotemptist, or, or, <laughs> or Muddled Libra. I feel so. like a Muddled Libra. You do? Yeah, I, I'm a oh, Libra okay. too, so it kind of it kind of works. You know, can I just go on some mini rat? Sure, security I, I love those. Ridiculous. These names are out of control. There's got to be some sort of unification of naming conventions here because this is like ridiculous. Well, I mean, I understand the problem they get into is that you know each group starts tracking a group and they put a name on it, so it's easier to refer to. Um, and then once they become very popular and in the news, you know, I, I think like sort of the news media picks up the one they like the best, and apparently this time it was Scattered Spider. Um, you know, I don't know why scattered swine didn't work or, you know, octo temptus, but you know, scattered <laughs> spiders is the one that stuck. So, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. Well, I, I also blame, you know, shout out to all my salespeople out there, marketing people. I love you guys. But some of these companies have like a lot of money invested in marketing. So they're like, I could imagine there's a meeting before like any, any public release and like, okay, guys. We need a very cool name. What about octopus? Because like these guys are using octa for part of their like their their methodology, right? Uh, yeah, let's you know round of applause. It's like handshaking, bottles of wet opening, right? But come on, guys, please let's let's treat this like CVEs, or maybe I'm just cranky. Am I cranky, Chris? You're not cranky. You're uh, you you're, you're coming off of a sickness, but no, we this has been a theme we've had on Hacker and the Fed for a long time is these crazy names. But we'll just go with scattered spiders. But you guys know it's all these other names too. So so the FBI comes out and says scattered spiders. You know they gain their initial access into large organizations because they're very adept at social engineering. They're also good uh, at, at phishing. 
They also can do MFA authentication bombing, which is also, you know, MFA fatigue, which is, you know, sending MFA tokens or requests to your device over and over and over again until you finally say, screw it, and you just say yes, um, which is good, bad. And then SIM swapping, which is when you gain control of someone's phone by convincing uh, a, like a cellular phone carrier that you're changing phones. And so they, they clone a SIM. Uh, and now this new phone acts just like your phone. So uh, this is sort of the way they get into their into the the networks uh, at the beginning. They also talk about the group has, is includes young English speaking members. Um, they also talk about Hector in this news article that that these members are as young as sixteen. How do you think they're they're coming up with that? Do they think they know one of them, or like where where did they come up with this age? That is a great question, and I have a theory behind this. I think that, you know, some of these members, some of these, these these young folks, we've seen some of them work before, right? We saw that with, what was that group that got into like NVIDIA and GTA, Rockstar? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Remember, they, they got arrested in the United Kingdom. They were a bunch of 16-year-old kids, teenagers. Um, and their, their modus operandi was social engineering, sim swapping, and, you know, everything in between. Lapsus, I think it was Lapsus or something like Laps, that. Was it Lapsus Group? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Lapsus was a proof of concept. It showed the world that yes, these young, impressionable teenagers could get together and utilize like techniques they've been using to steal, you know, gaming accounts and Roblox accounts and you know whatever it is these kids are doing these days. And well, can we leverage that as a bad actor? Can we leverage that capability? for ransomware campaigns, right? And remember, when Lapsus did what they did, they would get into an organization and get access like source code and leak it for clout, for attention. Now we're seeing the same modus operandi from the same category or group of, of people, uh, demographic rather, uh, engaging with ransomware groups. I think the ransomware operators are like, wait, these guys are actually pretty effective at getting in. Can we utilize them to, to start to convince people since they're native English speakers, uh, to do our bidding. And look, it's working effectively. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, from one of the recent attacks, they include some screenshots, some text messages, that these guys were you know, using physical threats um, to obtain logins. You know, Some of the, the text messages that comes, up, comes out was, uh, send your login, or I'm going to get corporate account and get you fired. Send your login right now, 10 minutes. I'm going to send someone over there uh, at a random time. So when you're sleeping, you won't know. Uh, send us your G and everything goes away. We delete your info after we have what we need. Um, your wife is going to get shot if you don't fold it. Like I, I didn't realize there were so much threats from coming out of this group uh, to, to turn over usernames and passwords. Well, I've seen this stuff before, right? So that's if if you go down the rabbit hole, there are videos online of young cats, young people like this, going to people's homes. They get paid on Cash App or crypto. They'll get paid like a grand to go to someone's house and like shoot at it. There's been there's been documented um, videos and and occasions where this happens. You think these might be like mercenaries for the group. Absolutely. Like the, these aren't really the hackers. So like no. the guys who did the Caesars hack, they got, let's say 10 million. It was in the, in the news as they got 10 million for that. Then they're now hiring people to go around and threaten. They find people like say on LinkedIn at a company 
and they go and they they find like their phone number, uh, which is you know we've we've done stories before where you know it takes five dollars to get someone's you know phone number and, and home address, um, and then they go they're hired to go threaten them. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Like it's a thing, and it's it's just so amazing to me that you know I've spent a lot of time with this podcast with you talking to the audience, and I'm hoping to change at least one of these guys, right? Change the perspective. Because, yes, you might be getting away with this because you're 16 right now. But wait until you start working with an operator that gets added to, like, that FICA list, right? A terrorist uh, uh, list of, of organizations you can't work with. Or wait till you participate in an operation with, like, a hospital gets ransomed. If someone dies, you don't think that your home country, your, your local law enforcement is going to look at you as an accessory? They're not going to charge you accordingly? We haven't seen that yet. But... Eventually, we're going to head in that direction. And I would love to see these young folks wake the hell up and uh, stop screwing around. This is, this is like, it's not a joke anymore. People are going to get hurt. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I just had this false sense of scattered spiders being like this group that, you know, they're calling call centers and social engineering their way in. I didn't realize they were using then, you know, kids to go out and, you know, threaten physical violence until someone turns over a username and password. It's a, it's a little shocking. It is shocking, but think about it like this. Let's say you're a dumb kid, you know, you're young. I was. I was a dumb kid, so that's easy for me to make that that, that imagine. Yeah, and you're playing video games all day, and you're, you know, you're an Xbox, and you're now you're a Discord, and then one of your boys like, yo, listen, I got somebody in your, in your neighborhood. They live like four houses down from you, bro. They have like, you know, half a million dollars in crypto. I, I have access to their, their, their phone, but they're not giving me like this code. Bro, just go over there with like a BB gun and shoot out the windows, right? In like 20 minutes. Uh, I'll send you 10 Gs. Unfortunately, a lot of kids that age will be like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I got you. But they're not realizing that they're going to be part of much bigger conspiracies, you know, once these organizations aren't being targeted by, uh, you know, law enforcement. So, yeah, we're talking, you know, 10, 25, 50 million dollar, you know, ransomware hacks that, you know, the FBI is not going to stop until they find these guys. And, you know, they're going to eventually get into their communications and they're going to find the guys there. They're, you know, doing these uh, physical threats because um, they maybe they're the only ones in the U.S. You know, you know, so they're going to get their hands on them eventually. So, they'll oh, be yeah, 100 percent. Um, but there's also one thing that I want to point out. And that is, and this is directly to the sim swatting. I know we're about to get into that in a second, right? Um, the sim swatting, the sim swapping. My bad, guys. I'm, a little, I'm still a little off. Um, and that is that, you know, we have another problem in this country. Aside from accountability, right? We have a problem where you have these mobile stores hiring these young folks, paying them close to nothing, the minimum. And these guys, these people, these folks have full control of your account. And we've seen in many cases, you see the rest behind this, by the way, where like an associate at like a T-Mobile store gets arrested. Why? Because it turns out that they were, they were swapping uh, SIMs or accounts or putting information for these ransomware groups. We've already seen the rest for this. We're probably going to see more of it as we move forward. But these guys are not getting paid anything. They're getting offered 50 grand for one SIM swap. So we need to now start looking at ways to kind of deal with mitigating that reality 
So Scattered Spiders gets in, you know, through these phone calls, the SMS phishing, the emails, the MFA fatigues, the SIM swaps. Um, and then they're, you know, they're also doing phishing attacks to install malware like Warzone Rat and Raccoon Stealer. Um, but then once they're in, uh, you know, the FBI and CISA put out there kind of the tools they're using for their, you know, remote system monitoring, their management and how they're kind of going through and finding network connections. Um, this list of tools, uh, were they, it was anything um, eye-opening to you in that? Not eye-opening, but all of these are great tools. <laughs> uh, well, not all of them. Uh, big shout out to Tailscale. Love you guys. I use Tailscale personally. I've used TeamViewer. Yeah. I've used Screen Connect, like all these ones. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. But it also, it also shows you the, the level of sophistication for these actors. They're not really sophisticated. Uh, and Grok and Tailscale are pretty solid tools. But everything else here is remote monitoring and management. So basically, you have these, these initial actors, initial entry specialists. They're getting access to systems. They don't know how to operate Linux, Unix, Active Directory, any of that. So like, okay. Well, let's use like TeamViewer to remotely control billion-dollar business. And you know what's crazy? It actually works. That's the crazy part. That that is really the crazy part in all of this. So the guy, they scattered spiders gets in. They want to go after valuable assets like the code repositories, uh, the code signing certificates, and their credential storage. Um, and then once they're in there, they closely monitor the victim's Slack channels, Microsoft Teams, and Exchange emails um, for messages containing any indication that their activities have been discovered. So once they're in the systems, they're watching what everybody in the company is saying. Have you ever prescribed a, a channel of communication outside of a normal business communication? Like, do you, do you ever prescribe, like, the IT guys all are on a, a signal um, communication or anything like that? Yeah, we use signal. Absolutely. If I have to deal with a client offline, like right now I'm doing a, I'm doing a red team engagement as we speak, right? I give, I give my client or the, the point of contact, the POC, my signal number is, is a dedicated phone just for them. Uh, has signal on it. Uh, in very rare cases, they want to use WhatsApp because they're not too tech savvy, right? But for the most part, signal for communication. Teams, Slack, stuff like that. Barely use that stuff for business. Barely. Slack, yes, unfortunately. But even that, I want to phase out over time. So once they're in there, the threat actors frequently are joining uh, incident remediation and response calls and teleconferences um, to know what that's going on. And they set up normally a fake profile. Um, so they create an identity within the environment. Um, and they also use fake social media to kind of build the integrity of that. So if anybody looks them up, that it, they have a social profile that matches on LinkedIn or whatever that says they work there. Um, so sophisticated once they're in there, not according to Hector, not using very sophisticated tools um, and using physical threats to gain initial access. So a little eye-opening information here about scattered spiders. So Hector, the next story is about a company that ended up paying a ransom attack, but the attackers released the data anyways. So Dolly.com, which is an on-demand moving and delivery platform, um, it's a platform that connects people who need help moving items um, with people that can lift heavy things. They were attacked, put in a ransomware, and then they allegedly paid the attackers not to publish the stolen data, but it got published anyways. Unfortunately, we've talked about this how many times, Chris? Hundreds. Hundreds of times. If you are a victim of ransomware, okay, I hope that you have an instant response plan. I hope that you have playbooks to deal with this. I hope that you have policies that you can follow. I hope that you have vendors in your network that's going to help you with this. But 
paying the ransom doesn't really do you any good, okay? Because these attackers still have access to your files. They can still release the files. And what we've seen from research is that once a victim pays, they are re-victimized at a later time, okay? I can't tell you what to do with your business. Your business is your business. The best I can do is offer you my opinion. If, unfortunately, you become a victim, you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. Because unless those files are extremely important to you, right, and you need them for business continuity, don't pay these guys. It's, it's, it's essentially like paying terrorists, all right? And you have no idea what this money is going towards. Just a heads up on that. But they should. I mean, they, they should. You, you say, you know, they have to figure out what to do. They should know what to do ahead of time. You should have a plan. You should figure you're going to be hit with a ransomware attack. Have a plan in place. Like, have things set up. Um, you know, we we talk about it all the time. Have an information, have a security plan, and, you know, do tabletop exercises and, and, and know what it's going to be ahead of time and how you're going to deal with it. But but this group was caught. Um, I guess the attackers complained that the payment wasn't generous enough, uh, and so they published uh, the information, um, including you know high level account login details, credit card information, customer information, including names and addresses, emails. Um, everything got put out there. Um, you know they put on the forums. They put all ninety five AWS S three bucket names that were hacked into that belonged to Dolly.com, including backups. Um, everything was was published on them. And so, you know, these guys paid um, and they still got totally victimized. So, uh, you know, like Hector says, uh, if you, you, you don't have to, don't pay these guys. They also didn't return the payment either. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> oh, man. Well, there's no honor among thieves, you know? They're, they're just, they're basically pirates, man. Like, they're just kind of like out there... Break, probably breaking their own rules because I guarantee you that there's a ransomware group out there pissed the hell off that these guys leaked these files because every time a ransomware group does this, what these guys did here, right, it further incentivizes incentivizes victims not to pay because you already know what to expect because of this incident. Now, what does that do for the, the ransomware economy or the ecosystem? Well, it's gonna it's gonna basically say it's probably, it's probably in the in the long term is gonna affect them, you know, uh, uh, economically. Maybe the short term is more of a nuisance, uh, but I, I promise there's at least one one ransomware group out there like, wow, why did you guys do this? You just kind of screwed it up for everybody else. Yeah, you're right, and uh, and I'm kind of glad these guys did this. Not not I'm not glad or happy for the victims. No, not at all. Uh, I, they have my empathy, right? Uh, but I'm glad that these these ransomware guys, these operators, expose themselves for what they are. You know, they're a bunch of charlatans. They're a bunch of scammers. They're bottom feeders. These people are uh, not to be trusted. And so, yes, folks, God forbid you put in this position. Look at Dolly.com and what they went through. But that leads into the next thing, Hector. There was another group that was hit by Alpha Black Cat ransomware that uh, they also did. They decided not to pay. And guess what Alpha did? They filed an SEC complaint over the victim's undisclosed breach. So what we've talked we've talked about it before in, in a couple episodes back. The SEC, the the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, now requires that if a a breach of a publicly traded company happens, they have a four day rule. 
um, to disclose the cyber attack. Uh, and so Alpha Black Cat hacked into a group called uh, uh, Meridian Link um, and gave them almost a, a, a month. Uh, no, let's let a month. They gave them a few weeks to pay, and they decided not to pay. And so they filed a complaint with the U.S. Secret Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, that they have broken this four-day rule. Hey, listen, I, I know we joked around about this. Maybe we, we kind of indirectly predicted this, this would happen, right? We certainly did. We certainly said that they were going to use this because we had that group that did the ransomware attack in the UK, and they claimed that, well, if you pay us, it's only a quarter of the regulatory fines. So it's cheaper just to pay us and keep it quiet. And that was in the chats that, that were disclosed. And so when the SEC came out with this rule, and, and I'm, I'm for this rule because it protects investors, uh, you know, in companies, but, you know, the, the bad guys hear about these things too and use these rules against us. As an organization, you have to take your security programs seriously. Now it's becoming an issue where if you are breached, there are consequences to that breach, especially if the SEC finds you negligible or negligent. Look what happened with the SolarWinds CISO not that long ago, Chris. You know, That's true. That's a crazy story. We're going to see more of this. And by the way, folks, if you're a publicly traded company and you're breached, before you get breached, I hope you have policies in place to deal with that. Because, yes, you will have to notify the SEC um, using a was that eight K form, right? Of that breach within four days. And by the way, I've spoken to people in law enforcement, Chris, and you, you and I have you and I have had conversations about this as well. That the only way that that breach notification could get delayed is if, like the the U.S. state attorney, was it the U.S. Uh, attorney general, yeah, is the one that delays it. The head of like, the Department of Justice is the only person that can say uh, because of investigation needs. You know, and that, that, you know, that's a cabinet level position requires the company to to not file for it. That's like asking the president for pardon, like the the, well, the guy the, right under the president. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, folks, again, you know, this is I know a lot of people on Twitter found this funny. They made a joke about this. This is not a joke. It's very serious. Uh, these ransomware operators will leverage whatever laws, policies, tools against you to apply pressure to get you to pay. And this is a great example of that. You know, I've had a lot of conversations about ransomware re recently with different people, you know, in, in the business. And what comes up a lot of times is that conversation we had, you know, a few episodes ago about how in the state of Florida and North Carolina, they made it so that local municipalities, it's illegal for them to pay ransomware. Um, I, I think that's where we got to go with some of this stuff. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to take some time, but you know, the ransomware guys, they want money. That's really what they want in the long run. Um, and so if they, they're not going to go after people that it's, they can't pay, like it's not an option for us. We can't pay. Um, it's, it's illegal for us to send you money. Um, so, uh, you know, all these different regulations put on companies, again, we've, we've bitched and moaned for years that these companies, you know, get away with murder practically with some of this breach stuff. So, you know, good on the SEC requiring it. Uh, but you know, before it's even out there, you know, the, the, there's a hacking group that's using it to their advantage. So I do will say that uh, Meridian Link, uh, they, they may get away with it on this one, uh, because this SEC rule doesn't go into effect until December 15th. That's true. That's true. Interesting turn of events, and I don't like to predict this kind of things. You know, I, you you either, right? We don't we don't want to wish the the, the the worst case scenario, but we're seeing it. 
and you know, the, the one thing I'll tell folks, especially the audience here that are listening, you guys are part of organizations, you're part of security teams. Big shout out to those of you out there that reach out to me on LinkedIn, especially. It's uh, it's good to see that a lot of you are taking security seriously. I'm very happy about that. But the reality is, is that, you know, as a society, we're not doing enough. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And, uh, and you're going to see more and more of these stories. I know I predicted... Maybe I overestimated the insider threat, <laughs> threat, right? Because <laughs> uh, you know, I, I thought at the beginning of last was it last year or no, this year? Yeah, I this said, year. Yeah, ransomware. Right? Yeah, this year. I was like, yeah, in my head, I'm like, maybe. First off, I want to be the guy that goes to the left. I want, I want to be able to offer insights or not, which you're probably gonna hear on ten thousand other podcasts. You know, I want, I want to think about things that you're probably not thinking about, right? Well, um, we were recently labeled the. Uh, Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla of cybersecurity. Oh, uh, yeah. Bringing information. Bringing security, information. Yeah. yeah. We're the love line <laughs> of information security. So oh, uh, we'll take that. Big shout out to the person who left that comment. Thank you for that. That was great. But yeah, no, it's it's uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating to see this stuff take place. Fascinating because a lot of this stuff, Chris, I'm sure you remember before, prior to Bitcoin, a lot of this stuff was kind of like theorized. Well, here's what would happen if attackers could figure out a way to monetize a compromise. Well, we're seeing it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, ransomware is a direct direct lineage from the, the advent of, uh, of cryptocurrency. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, because we've had encryption for 75 years. They just couldn't figure out a way of getting paid. And you know what? It works. And it's not going to go anywhere, okay? Because now that you have, you have that big Bitcoin ETF that went live recently, um, you have companies like BlackRock buying billions and billions of dollars of Bitcoin. Uh it's not going anywhere. Now, now now there's institutional money behind crypto. So with that being said, now we have to look inwards and figure out what's the deal with our policies. Do these tabletop exercises. I've talked about this all the time. Yeah, you could you could call Chris and his team. You could call me and my team. We can do a tabletop exercise any, any day of the week. But if you guys are tight on budget, tomorrow for lunch, get your department heads together, start asking questions. What's the worst case scenario? If we get, if we get briefs today, by scattered, you know, whatever, uh, spider. Uh, we know what the uh, methodology is. Scattered huh? swine or UNC 3944. Sorry, or, go ahead. Or, or Libra, <laughs> right? <laughs> if we get breached by those guys and we know their TTPs, right? We know their tactics. We know their techniques. We know their procedures. We know their modus operandi. We know what tools they use. Okay. So we have that information. What are we doing to detect those services on our network, right? By the way, most of, most of those tools, Chris, require bidirectional HTTPS communications. So if, if TailScale works on your network like that, that means that you're not intercepting outbound traffic. If you're not intercepting outbound traffic, then what are you doing, okay? So these you're are all asleep things at the wheel. That's what you're doing. Asleep at the wheel. Thank you, Chris. Well, you know what? Now that there's money involved, people losing jobs... We spoke about that company a few months ago out of the United Kingdom, right? 200, a 200-year-old company that went down because of a ransomware attack, right? Uh, yeah, this is causing, uh, it's, it's causing impacts on local economies. Is people losing their jobs, right? Uh, if you value what it is that you've built, you need to invest in what it is that you built. So that's my rant for the day. Thank you for listening. Hector. The FCC now enforces a stronger rule to protect customers against SIM swapping attacks. So the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, is adopting a new rule to protect consumers 
uh, from cell phone account scams that make it possible for malicious actors to orchestrate SIM swapping attacks and port out fraud. Um, what are those two? SIM swapping is the transferring of a user's account to a SIM card controlled by a scammer uh, by convincing the victim's wireless carrier. And port out fraud is when a bad actor poses as a victim, transfers their phone number from one service provider to another without the victim's knowledge. So the FCC now wants to make this harder. And the new rules require the wireless providers to immediately notify customers whenever a SIM change or port out request is made on a customer's account and take additional steps to protect the customer from the SIM swap and the port out fraud. So that's all nice, Hector. How are they going to do it? I have no idea because there is such a thing as rogue providers out there. We've spoken about situations where uh, if you have enough money or you have the right connections, you could pay uh, a provider out in uh, somewhere in Asia or Africa to intercept or do a SIM swap or... Or, uh, uh, or or send out uh, rogue SMS messages that are paid. I have no idea how they're going to do this, but I have some ideas. Um, we've seen recently with the FCC, what they've done is they had a problem. The problem was spoofed phone calls. Remember those, Chris, right? And the way a spoofed phone call works, and I know I've explained this in the past. Let me just give you a quick TLDR. The way spoofed phone calls works is you set up some sort of uh, a VoIP uh, inter- intermediary, like uh, let's say like an asterisk or a free PBX system. Then you connect that system to uh, a trunk, right? And there's a bunch of virtual trunk providers and they'll basically like rent you phone services and they'll give you a phone number and based off of the, uh, the PBX software that you use, you could set up a menu where if an incoming phone call Inputs a, a, a you know a sequence of codes like let's say one two three four, and then they follow the one two three four with a f- secondary phone number right a target phone number, then the uh, phone system will then call that number on your behalf and redirect you to call, but they'll change the outbound uh, a caller ID, very simple modification, uh, and so. What the person sees on the other line is the spoofed phone number, okay? That was a problem for a long time. It was very effective for scammers. Uh, now, what did the FCC do? They said, okay, we need to figure out a way to deal with this. We're going to put in laws, requirements uh, that are going to force these virtual trunk providers uh, to verify your address prior to allowing that to even happen. And in some cases, even after you verify your address and verify your identity, you, the, the virtual truck itself probably will not allow you to do a spoof. This happened with Twilio. This happened with some other big providers. Um, as a social engineer, as someone as a practitioner, I actually need that service. So now I'm looking at four companies that allow virtual spoofing uh, or call spoofing in order for me to do my job. But for bad actors, if they were to go to Twilio and sign up and say, okay, we're going to use Twilio for caller ID spoofing, what are they going to see? They're going to see a form they have to fill out. They have to verify and validate their address. The address has to match an ID. And it could take two to six weeks for that validation process, right? So for a scammer, in order for them to actually utilize this in an engagement, it's at least a six-week process, okay? That's what the FCC did with in regards to caller ID spoofing. Now, 
What can the FCC do here when it comes to SIM swapping? Maybe there needs to be some sort of authentication mechanism, maybe some sort of central authority, some, something somewhere that would require validation beyond just a phone call in order for a SIM swap to take place. Okay. Yeah, the, what the is that going to be for you, Chris? Huh? But the problem Sorry? is, is the problem is like people, you know, some people only have a phone. They they don't have another computer, so it's not like they can get receive an email someplace else uh, that the that this is happening to their their phone. Um, and then on the other hand, like let's say you're on a vacation, you go to the beach and you lose your phone in the ocean, and you need your phone. I mean, would you just come home from the vacation? Do you just leave early? No, you go to the lo your local you know carrier and you ask for a new you buy a new phone and you ask them to swap the sim over um so you can keep getting your phone calls um i i don't you know maybe i'm missing something here but i don't understand how involving another third party another authority um to going to keep me from getting that phone calls is going to make the process of me losing my phone in the ocean or having my phone stolen um going to make make my life any easier well, that's the thing. That's that's the point I was getting to, right? It's not going to make it any easier for you as a consumer. Because the next time you're on vacation, you lose your phone, you're probably screwed. You know? It all depends on what the FCC and whatever organizations to get involved with figure out in terms of mitigation, right? Uh, we don't know what that looks like. We have no idea. We know, we know what the FCC was able to do with core ID spoofing. Did that the FCC off efforts were pushed it back six weeks? Did that stop it? It made it complicated for actors, but did it stop it hundred percent? No, no. But if it made it more complicated, they you know then then I guess that's really what we're looking to do is just try to to make it even more difficult because right now sim swapping is easy. You just need someone that works at, at one of the one of the uh, you know even a low kiosk in the mall can do it. Exactly right. You know, and it kind of goes back to my rant earlier about you know. You have this young person, they're working at a, at a mobile store. You know, you walk in with $10,000 cash. You think they're going to deny you? We've we got to be realistic. we got to be realistic about that. These ransomware guys, you know, 10000 is nothing. You know, they're, they're making $100 million. You know, there, there's some crazy numbers being thrown around for, for ransom now. And for, for those of you that don't follow VX Underground on Twitter, these guys are fantastic, okay? They have been posting videos from ransomware operator groups. These videos show these ransomware guys throwing massive parties, trolling security industry, trolling the local uh, law enforcement. They're, they're, they've turned this into a joke. $10,000, right, to them is a sneeze. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extra breath for the day. It's going to be difficult. I'm looking, to see, I'm looking forward to see what FC, the FCC does with this problem, but I'm sure it's going to take anywhere between two to four years for that to materialize. Let's see. Hacker in the Fed is happy to be sponsored by Cloud Solvers, the ultimate endpoint security solution. You know how vital endpoint security is, right? It's the first thing you need to worry about when you're hacking or defending against hackers. It's where the action happens 95% of the time. We talk about it every week. That's true, Chris. Endpoint security is essential for any organization that wants to keep its data and systems safe from cyber criminals. 
The problem is that the organizations are clueless about how to secure their endpoints effectively. They keep buying more and more security tools, but they don't know how to use them properly. They may have universal endpoint management or otherwise UEM platforms like Microsoft Intune, VMware's Workspace ONE, AirWatch, MobileIron, or others, but they don't know how to configure and deploy them for maximum protection and compliance. I see that all the time in my engagements, Chris. I work with clients before or after penetration tests, and we review the technologies they have invested in. Sometimes they have gaps in the security posture, meaning that some of the tools are not working as expected. I see that a lot, actually. Back in the day, let's say uh, about 20 years ago, many products were snake oil. And I'm sure many, many of our audience could agree to that. Um, or they were not marketed honestly. They didn't do what they claimed to do. Nowadays, that's not really the case. If you pay for an endpoint detection and response or EDR tool, you expect it to do at the very least behavior analytics or integrate with some sort of sensor system or incident response platform. But here's the thing. When you buy these tools for your organization, what the salespeople may forget to tell you is that you can't just plug and play, set it or forget it, like a Ronco, old Ronco commercial, okay? Like, you know, Ronco stayed on TV for you know many years when I was a kid. I used to love those commercials, by the way. You actually have to fine-tune these products to make them effective. And they are great and they do work, but only if you put in the effort and time to optimize them for your environment. Well, Hector, that's where Cloud Solvers comes in. They have a dedicated team of senior engineers with deep knowledge on how to configure and deploy UEM platforms for maximum protection and compliance. Cloud Solvers offers a comprehensive, proactive endpoint management service that can protect your company from many types of attack, including insider errors and attacks. They have deep skills to make sure that your endpoints are continually managed and protected for both insider and outsider threats. For example, cloud solvers can ensure that USB ports are locked down, preventing an insider from copying and stealing your critical enterprise data or loading unapproved software or even malware. Nice. Okay. Well, look, cloud solvers is offering Hacker the Fed listeners a free assessment of their current environment. This is a great opportunity for anyone who's doing a penetration test of their core infrastructure or who wants to improve their endpoint security posture. Their senior architects will review your current environment and provide actionable advice to better reduce attack surfaces and harden your endpoints to internal and external threats. Contact Cloud Solvers today and let them optimize your UEM solutions to ensure that you are protected and compliant. Again, go to cloudsolvers.com and click on the contact us in the upper right corner. And from there, you want to write hacker in the Fed sent me to get a free assessment of your current environment. Again, guys, if you have a UEM solution, it may not be optimized for your business. Go to cloudsolvers.com, tell them hacker in the Fed sent you and get a free assessment of your current environment. Supporting our sponsors helps support hacker in the Fed.
So, Hector, I interviewed Lance Taupin, an attorney over at Austin Bird. Let's listen to that interview. Hacker in the Fed is happy to have Lance Taubin, attorney at Austin Bird's privacy, cyber, and data strategy team. Welcome to the show, Lance. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Longtime listener. I appreciate that. That's right. Yeah, whenever I can get away from uh, from work and I don't mind listening, continuing to listen and, and delve into cybersecurity, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy Hacker in the Fed. Like I said, Lance is an attorney at Austin Bird's privacy, cyber, and data strategy team. And before joining Austin Bird, he served as a senior vice president and assistant general counsel, uh, data security officer at a large business. So we're going to get to find out from Lance what it's like being an attorney inside and outside a company. Lance, you wanted to start with a disclaimer for the audience. Why don't you go ahead and put that out there now? That's right. And this is um, not legal advice, um, just my own uh, personal opinion, not my firm. So uh, please do not rely on it uh, as you will. No, I'm, I'm more than happy to chat and discuss, so feel free to reach out uh, after the pod. And my own little personal disclaimer for the audience, too. So Lance and I have known each other for many years. We started working together, and that's developed into a personal relationship. So I'm happy to have Lance on the show and learn about cyber law and how it's like to be a cyber lawyer. So Lance, let's get started back where your path began into cyber. So you went to law school. Um, was it cyber, that then into law school, or law school into cyber? It was law school into cyber. Um, I've got, I guess, a, a good little story, or I like to think it's a good little story, but I, I stumbled, I got lucky, and 2013, I graduated law school. We did, There was no such thing as like a cyber law class or data privacy class. The only class that we had was internet law, which had some components of cyber law. I was, I've always been very you know, into technology and pretty fairly tech savvy for someone who's not an engineer. Uh, and then my first job at uh, a large corporate travel management company, I was working in the in-house department, uh, in the legal department in-house and the general counsel first day, I'll never forget who happens to be greatest guy in the world, great mentor. He said, you know, this whole data privacy and cybersecurity thing is becoming a big deal. Um, and he is a corporate lawyer uh, trained and he you know, didn't have any experience in this area and asked me to you know, kind of learn more about it, get up to speed. And uh, that's what I did. And I, worked, I got a certified through the International Association of Privacy Professionals and uh, just kind of learned on the job through various experts and working with you in, in certain respects and, and other outside counsel uh, in this field. And I just really started to love it and enjoy it. And so it was, I guess, 50% luck, 50% um, passion once I stumbled upon it. And now I've made that the focus of my career. So I have been asked to speak at a few Fordham Law School events, and, and I've really enjoyed it, working with the, the students there and helping them understand cyber and kind of telling my story. Um, but they do have these data privacy and, and, and lawyer classes now. How, how have you seen law schools change, if you've seen it at all, since 2013 with cyber? I'm very jealous. Uh, a lot, every law school, every law student that I interview, um, I can't say I'm very, I stay up to speed on the curriculum at law school, but every law school uh, interviewee ha tells me, or if they, if they are part of the, the certification programs or classes, we've got tons of, there was, I think someone I interviewed, last week has advanced data privacy as if there was a data privacy 
precursor to the advanced class. So there's multiple classes. It's like, it's, it's amazing. Um, and it's only a reflection of this industry growing, um, and becoming, you know, really super important for just about every company. So you're seeing cyber becoming a big part of law schools and people are coming out of law school as lawyers with a, with some cyber experience. So it's interesting. I, I wouldn't say they're coming out of law school with cyber experience or they're coming out of law school as cyber lawyers because every law student comes out of law school not knowing how to be a lawyer. No offense. Um, I, I was there. But they. I would say that it has become as uh, established or just about as established as other areas such that are more, you know, more commonly known and more historically uh, well-known, such as intellectual property or tax or corporate law. So we mentioned that you were part of Austin Bird's privacy, cyber, and data strategy team. Can you tell me some sort of things that that, that group does and then more specifically what you do? So uh, we've got um, a number of lawyers across the world. Uh, we're uh, based, we've got offices in UK and Brussels, uh, as well as about, I think, 10 to 15 offices in the States where we do, I guess there's two different buckets, data privacy and cybersecurity. I focus more on the cybersecurity uh, aspect, but we also do, uh, and but we've got other lawyers who focus more on the data privacy piece. So we've got uh, on the data privacy piece, we're, you know, overseeing, you know, compliance with various different privacy regulations, whether it's CCPA out in California, GDPR in Europe. And then on the cyber piece, which is what I can speak to more, you know, more closely is we are doing, the majority of our work is incident response and representing organizations who are dealing with a data breach, cyber attack, but also in that bucket, which is about 80% of my work, will do proactive cyber uh, incident response work, whether that's tabletop exercises, helping them uh, put to draft or revise an incident response plan that they can use um, once an incident comes about. So that's the, the vast majority of our work. Um, but we're also doing proactive cybersecurity work, whether that's uh, regulatory, coming into compliance with regulations, um, which are becoming more and more prominent and more and more prescriptive. Uh, and uh, we do a good bit of diligence for M&A and corporate work. So clients of ours and our, our corporate clients are looking to acquire or invest in certain companies, and they want to understand what their target cybersecurity posture is. So we will assist the in the due diligence process to understand their cybersecurity posture. So am I right in the terminology? I just want to make sure the audience is right. So if you work at a law firm like Austin Bird and a company hires you, you're considered outside counsel. If you're an attorney that works inside the company, you're, you're inside counsel. In-house counsel is the, but you can call it inside counsel, same concept. All right. So can you mention, can you talk to us about, so outside counsel, what are the roles and the responsibilities outside counsel plays during a breach and pre-breach? So, well, those are two, those are big questions and two different questions. So I'll start with the pre-breach work because I think that's a shorter, shorter, easier answer. So pre-breach, we want the company to be as prepared as possible to respond to an incident. 
And as you know, Chris, practice, practice, practice. And unfortunately, a lot of companies uh, do not do that. And they don't know how to handle incidents when they arise, which is helpful for us because that, you know, they bring us on board and that keeps us employed. But being able to understand what to do when an incident arises or when they think an incident arises is very helpful. Um, not only because you want to know who to call and what to do and what types of communications you should make, what are the legal, what's the legal regulatory requirement, potential legal regulatory requirements, but you also ultimately the end goal is to minimize business interruption and minimize exposure, legal risk. And without preparation, you're not going to be able to do this uh, or not going to be able to do this as effectively as you would if you prepared. So what does that mean practically? That means putting together, drafting a incident response plan. And I think incident response plans can take many forms. What we generally see is a uh, an enterprise plan, a cross-functional plan, meaning the technical people, legal, operations, marketing, communications, all different groups, how they interact and what happens, how an incident comes in, how it's triaged, is an incident, you know, an official cybersecurity incident or however you define it, declared, what happens, how are you escalating this to management, when do you escalate this to management, does this get escalated to the board, when does this get escalated to the board, uh, and there's, there's a, you know, hundreds of different questions that you'd want to think about depending on the circumstances. But having a tight document that you can reference to uh, use when you're in a crisis is very helpful because, as you know, a lot goes on and you have to move very quickly uh, during an incident and you don't want to forget things. So that's the incident response plan at you know, very, very high level. Um, within those incident response plans, we generally also have incident-specific playbooks, ransomware playbook, insider threat playbook, uh, DDoS, credential stuffing playbooks, um, which could help in th those types of incidents and you know, specific issues that arise during those types of incidents. Then... Tabletop exercises. Um, I just flew back uh, from Texas yesterday. I was in Ohio last week doing tabletops. Uh, these are, and, and there's multiple different types. Generally, we see an executive level tabletop and a technical tabletop. Technical is really the technology infosec, infosec and um, IT folks uh, who are kind of the frontline who will receive and see the suspicious activity initially. Uh, and then there's the executive levels, which is generally the C-suite uh, and management who are running the company who would have a hand in helping respond to the incident. And those tabletop exercises, um, especially the, the executive ones, we help uh, companies, we simulate an incident, um, whether it's a ransomware incident, um, whether it's extortion, insider threat, whatever it may be. And it's helpful for these executives who don't do this on a regular day-to-day -day basis to understand the types of conversations that have to happen or that should happen 
and it gets them thinking about various, you know, potential gaps that they may have or issues that they should further consider in advance of an incident. So that's the kind of pre-breach work. Uh, I'll pause before I go on to the incident stuff if you <laughs> have a question. No, I, no, I want to move on to it. But yeah, no, the tabletop stuff and, and people really, you know, they they go back and forth and, and how important it is. And, and I try to stress it and Hector tries to stress it of how important these tabletop exercises really are because you don't want to come up with a fire evacuation plan while the house is on fire. Uh, you sort of want to understand early on how you're going to get out and, and the things you're going to do and, and, and keep calm. So, um, yeah, we prescribe tabletop exercises all the time. I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's a, a Rocky quote. It's like, do you have a plan when you get hit in the face um, from the movie Rocky? I mean, that that's basically what this is because it, it is a soup. It's a fire drill. I think it's more you have a plan until you're hit in the face. That's uh, right. Yeah. So but, once you get punched it. in the face, all plans are out the window. So have you ever been punched in the face? I have not, thankfully. Oh, it is a game changer. It will change your <laughs> life uh, forever. So ho hopefully you can go the whole time if you're, and, and never get punched in the face. So, okay. So let's move on to, we have, that's the, the pre-breach. And, and again, it's it's a it's a dirty thing we talk about, and we're not trying to scare people in cybersecurity, but it's it's until this happens. Uh, and so a group like Austin Bird comes in and and can show you how to, you know, these are the things we're seeing every day on the ground. This is what's how's going to help your company make decisions and and like Lance said, find the gaps in your plan. Uh, but now an incident has happened, and you are brought in as the outside counsel. Um, and so, what are your ro roles and responsibilities during a breach response? It depends on the, the client. Um, they may have um, really sophisticated, large in-house counsel with in-house cyber attorneys, or they may have one general counsel who doesn't know anything about cyber. So it, it varies in terms of our responsibilities. But generally at a high level, our responsibility is to help the company reduce risk to the greatest possible ability. Uh, while complying with, you know, relevant laws. And as we come in, I'll kind of take this step by step through the um, timeline of an incident. We will come in and, you know, obviously under, you know, get a download of the facts, understand what's going on, what type of, what was the alert? Why do you think there's an incident, et cetera? Typically we will, the first step on a large incident will involve engaging a third-party forensics firm under privilege. So um, there's, there's extensive case law uh, about this, but generally speaking, you will try, again, on the theme of limiting and reducing risk, try to direct the investigation by counsel so you would engage the third-party forensic firm like a Naxo. The Naxos of the world. They're, the Naxos they're come of the and help world. You. Exactly. Um, but we would put that on our paper or, you know, put, you know, attorney client privilege under the, the contract and, and understand that this entire investigation would be at the direction of counsel for the purposes of providing legal advice to our client. And unfortunately, we live in a litigious world and data breaches frequently result in litigation. And we uh, want to be able to protect those privileged communications and documents uh, and reports. So, uh, but there's, by the way, there's a lot of times where a forensic firm may not be necessary. 
um, because it's a smaller incident. We, you know, the in, in-house infosec team or technology team kind of has full visibility on what transpired. But uh, I'll, I'll go through kind of a, a larger breach scenario. There will be if, for example, it's a ransomware incident, which is you know basically the last three four years have been massive on the ransomware uh, incident incidents. We there's going to be systems that are down, and business operations could be impacted. Customers could see the, that impact. Um, so there's going to be a lot of decisions about communications. How are you communicating internally to your employees, to your executives, to the board? How are you communicating to your customers? Um, and then vendors, partners who may have um, direct connections into your environment. Uh, then you have, of course, have regulators. So we're seeing uh, certain regulators come out with very tight timelines on notification on um, incidents. So, for example, uh, federal banking regulators recently, a couple of years ago, came out with uh, 36 hours on a material, uh, it was a computer uh, security incident uh, notification for that materially degrades or disrupts uh, your business operations, something to that effect. I, there's a definition with four prongs and I don't memorize it, but 36 hours is pretty quick. So there's a lot of communications um, and analysis that has to happen initially. Um, are you going to communicate to the media? Is media reaching out? Is social like what are you doing? Are you going to put out a statement on social media? So there's the communication front. Sometimes clients will want to engage a third-party PR firm um, to assist in those communications, and we would do so under privilege. We would recommend doing so under privilege as well, for the most part, to protect those communications. All of this, though, you're talking about in a in a in a perfect world would have been a client that you previously had for a tabletop exercise, a TTX. Um, and these decisions would have been made. And so you're sort of now sort of rolling. Um, am I assuming here that, that, you know, engaging a PR firm would be part of a, a tabletop decision, part of an incident response plan? Um, or is, is it more is it more nuanced than that? It depends on the client. Some clients have retainers with these companies. So um, those are those contracts are already established. Sometimes they've got relationships but no contract in place so we would get those contracts in place you know very very quickly within hours of the incident arising um but also there's going to be client there's going to be incidents that where you'll want to engage those partners and other incidents that you that you don't think that's necessary um so it really so it's not a all or none type of um ordeal and so it's not always decided during tabletops whether you're going to, you know, definitively engage these parties. Uh, but it's definitely discussed during tabletops. So there's a number of different work streams, but we are gen- we are we are working with the in, you know, the the containment of the incident is critical. That is, you know, step one, making sure we're containing the incident, and we are helping to to wall the Naxos of the world and the the client, their IT and InfoSec team are trying to understand, you know, where the threat actor got in, what systems do they have access to, what did they potentially take? Um, We are helping them navigate uh, that investigation and understand potential additional legal exposure that could arise. For example, if they get into file servers, 
that contain legal documents or customer documents and personal information. Um, and once we identify that, and if, if the forensics identify, for example, exfiltration of documents with personal information, we then have a potential notification uh, obligation to these customers and regulators. And uh, there's then, you know, a lot of times we will engage a, another third party, a data analytics firm to analyze that data. Because, for example, you'll see terabytes of data that are exfiltrated and you can't quickly go through terabytes of data on your own to understand what personal information or what information is involved there. So you engage third parties to do that. Um, so you can understand whose personal information or protected health information or, or other sensitive documents, what was impacted. It makes me smile though, because I, you know, I've been doing this for quite some time and being on the technical side of things for a lawyer to explain to me that they understand the difference between a file server and a web server, uh, and the difference between uh, a gigabyte and a terabyte and how <laughs> you can't go through a terabyte. Well, it's right there. What, what was it? Well, it's a terabyte of information. You know, it's, it, it makes me happy that you don't have to go through that. And the, the cyber literacy, uh, you know, is, is catching up. So it's, it's, I, I will say, though, I mean, you taught me a lot, Chris, but I didn't come from law school with this knowledge. I, I, I am a American a history major, an American history major, uh, liberal arts college. I have no tech background. Um, so I learned this post-law school. So it is, I don't want all the younger listeners and, and aspiring cybersecurity professionals, this is not uh, something that I learned till I was on the job. So I think that's one thing, you know, that, that, that's been good for you, though, is, you know, Awesome Bird has a, has such a, a deep bench of knowledge in the cyber experience that you're able to to draw from from the other attorneys in your practice. It's true. It's it, it, it's remarkable. And that's so uh, that's why I went to Austin uh, a couple of years ago to, you know, kind of further my career. And, and I knew I wanted to end up doing this for the rest of my career um, because this is what I was passionate about. This is what I like getting up and working, you know, uh, doing, you know, 12 hours a day or whatever the day, wherever the day takes me. Um, it's exciting to me and stimulating, um, and working with such a, you know, incredible team who's got such a deep knowledge. I mean, we've got ex CISOs, uh, lawyers on our team, um, and other incredible, you know, information security, technical professionals who happen to be incredible lawyers first and foremost, uh, in this field. Uh, who I learned from uh, on a day in and day out basis. So, yeah, you guys have federal prosecutors, which really you know kind of lines yeah. with me and lets me uh, you know, <laughs> live the old days. So that's why I love working with your team, uh, those yep. guys. Um, so you know, interesting. You, you said you you know you, you've worn two hats in this in the cyber world, and so I just want the audience to kind of understand um, what it's like. So you, before joining, you were part of a general counsel's office. Um, and also part of their data security officer at, the, at a large company. So what's a, what's a breach response or the daily responsibilities of, if, of the uh, you know, general counsel's office uh, of, of a large business? So I had an incredible experience in-house. Um, fortunately, I wasn't dealing with data breaches day in and day out, which is generally what I'm dealing with now. Not just breaches, but you, you did have to deal with IT and data security. And that's, and that, yeah, that's what I was going to touch on. I, as the data security officer, um, who, you know, built and, and established a data security program for the most part, I was able to work every single day 
with our information security professionals, our engineers, and it was where I learned what a firewall was, what the difference between a, uh, you know, what a file server is, and really understand cybersecurity, honestly, and practically what that means. Um, and I and I really think that that helped me uh, where I am now because. I can understand what all this means being in-house, why there's always this tension between security and convenience, and everyone talks about all all, all that all the time. But I know a number of lawyers who say, who don't have the perspective that I do that say, I don't care if it's inconvenient that you have to use two factor authentication on every single application and system. They just say it's secure and you need this and we want to ensure that the right person is logging into the right systems. But the reality is it's really inconvenient for business operations sometimes. But Lance, there's single sign-on and FIDO keys. Can't we do that? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of FIDO keys um, and I have them myself personally. But um, so I think that was, a, that was a great experience. And frankly, it's really where I learned the technical aspects of cybersecurity. And by no means am I an expert, by the way, I still am Googling uh, a number of things that you tell me or you that I read about and don't really know. And, and uh, thankfully, the you can learn a lot on the internet. But my, my kind of foundational understanding and knowledge came from being in-house. And then on the breach... Uh, and listening to Hacker in the Fed. And listening to Hacker in the Fed, for sure. <laughs> thank for you, sure. thank you. Um, I, f- I feel like I've been listening to Hacker in the Fed for, I don't know, how long, eight, <laughs> seven, eight years, however long I've known you, uh, which is great. The breach world, it's interesting. It's very different, very, very different. So as, and I only handled a couple of incidents, not, uh, and some of them were third-party vendors, suppliers of ours. Uh, and those being in-house, is more intense and less intense. Uh, More intense because as someone who is ultimately quarterbacking the response internally, you've got a million people coming to you all the time asking questions. Um, And that is difficult. Uh, You also have a lot of responsibility and pressure to move quickly and, and make the right decisions. And you're on the ground, like, I mean, this is pre-COVID. So we were physically in the office. Um, and I think that also is a, is a big difference because when there's business operational impact and you see people, you hear people talking outside your office, what's going on? I can't get onto my, this application or whatever it is. It's just a different experience. Whereas with outside counsel, who generally has further expertise and further experience in this area and really can help in-house counsel navigate the response, uh, I think as outside counsel, you, you, as in-house counsel, you really rely on outside counsel and your forensics folks um, because they've got that expertise and experience. Uh, but they they don't have the business the knowledge of the business, which is very helpful. And 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 as in house counsel, you can 
bring a lot more value to based on your business, your knowledge of the business to think about how you can mitigate issues that arise from the incident or, you know, post-incident remediation opportunities. Um, so you just have more of an institutional knowledge in the, in the business. So that's a key difference. So those hacking the Fed listeners that you've inspired today to get into cyber law, um, what would you prescribe as a path for them? Do you do you think that your undergraduate degree should be in computer science and then go to law school? Do you where, where do you think you should go to become out and become the most competitive in in a cyber law position? It, it's a great question, and I will say I encourage you all to do this because it's a, it's a very fulfilling job in my opinion, and. I don't know the right answer, but I know first and foremost, and, and uh, a, a friend of mine who's a, a mentor who, uh, in, in the industry who's a cyber lawyer as well, who's been at this for longer than I have, said first and foremost, the most important thing about being a cyber, being a good cybersecurity lawyer is being a good lawyer, not you know understanding cybersecurity. And... I think that is really, really important. So you could have all the technical knowledge and information security knowledge um, that you may have, Chris, um, which is light years ahead of me. But being a great lawyer is paramount and, and the most important step. So uh, I think going to law school, taking law school seriously, and really, you know, whatever that first job is, in a, most of um, my colleagues, their first job was not cyber lawyer. Their first job was litigation, uh, or, you know, transactional work. And they became great lawyers that pivoted to cyber. Now I will say, uh, and, and my friends, colleagues, and I have this conversation, it probably wouldn't hurt to have a CISSP certification and have a, you know, engineering background, uh, I think about patent lawyers who have a more technical uh, background. They have, it's just a, a very um, niche skill set. So it probably can't hurt. Do I, I wish I had that um, knowledge base, but I've, you know, I've had experiences that are, that are equally, I think, as, as valuable. But there are lawyers that go to medical school, right? Like if you do medical malpractice and all that, like there are some lawyers that have a medical degree. Absolutely. I mean, um, and one of, uh, part of my firm was an ex CISO. So she's incredibly technical and understands, um, the technical world and, um, much better than most, much better than me, much better, much better than most lawyers and, and cyber lawyers. So would I say get an engineering degree in undergrad and then go to law school? Sure. That would be great. But I was a history major and I ended up just okay. Were you a history major knowing you were going to go to law school? No, I was, a history major because I really like history. Um, it's just, I really enjoy that. And I actually thought I was going to go to business school when I was a freshman in uh, college. And then I took calculus and it was the worst grade I ever got in college. And I said, this sucks. So I didn't like it. And then I took a couple pre-law classes that I really enjoyed. And it's like, I'm, I'm going to go to law school. Yeah, I went to college for pre-med. I was going to be a doctor up until my junior year. And I decided I'm going to go into law enforcement. So the paths we take. So Hector famously picked 2023 as the year of the insider. I don't think it turned out that way. I think you and I both agree that uh, 2023 <laughs> has been the year of ransomware. Uh, the biggest hacks of the year has been ransomware. 
Um, where do you see cyber and cyber crime going in the next few years? I wish I could say something different, but I think I would have to say ransomware, uh, at least for 2024. Uh, these threat actors are becoming so sophisticated and it, it, it's actually astonishing to me how sophisticated they've become over the past five, 10 years. Um, and so I, I do think ransomware will continue to be the, the, the biggest and largest threat. That's not to say that there won't be others. I, I know there's tons of business email compromises that may be the, actually the, by numbers, the largest number of incidents, at least reported incidents. Uh, but ransomware is, there's megabucks uh, in ransomware. Uh, and the, that's where the threat actors want to spend their time and money uh, and resources. I mean, I, I, we were talking the other week about a recent FBI uh, alert that, that went out that you can all search for. But these threat actors are now deploying automatic wipers uh, to delete data permanently based on a timer if you don't pay the ransom. And then they are also, and, and, and these, these wipers cannot be detected allegedly, um, with, you know, with, with much ease. And they're also deploying multiple forms of ransomware. So they're hitting you with one ransomware variant and then another ransomware variant. And it's just truly the way that the, the ransomware groups have shifted to a, a ransomware as a service type of model is, um, is a game changer. And I think it will only continue into 2024. I'm going to disagree with you slightly that I don't think the criminals have become more sophisticated. I think the criminals have become more wealthy through the payments and have attracted the talent and can now hire and pay the talent uh, to be behind the scenes running it. So I still think they're criminal organizations, but now they have very talented people that uh, are uh, are helping them run run their game. I think that's fair. And I think, as, as you know, we need to make sure that our audience understands these are very, uh, these, are, these are enterprises. Um, these are not, you know, your 18-year-old, 20-year-old kid in mom's basement just hacking away. These are very technically savvy enterprises with, you know, large organizations and and call centers for help desks and uh, they have HR and signing bonuses. They are literally offering signing bonuses to people. It, it, it's uh, insane, which is crazy. So, Lance, uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great. Um, where can Hacker and the Fed listeners go to find out more about Austin Bird Services or about your practice? Alston, uh, www.alston.com, A-L-S-T-O-N. Uh, you can find me, um, my infor my contact information's on the website. Feel free, please reach out. I'm always available. Uh, may not respond as quickly as, as, as I would like given uh, the busy schedule, but please, I'm happy to, to, to speak with anyone who's interested in the field, um, any questions, um, but please don't hesitate. Lance, it's been a great conversation. I know the audience is going to appreciate it, learning a little more about cyber law and cyber law practices. We appreciate you coming on Hacker in the Fed, and it's been great catching up with you. Thanks so much. Chris, really a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to uh, listening to more Hacker in the Fed pods. Thanks, Lance. Cheers. 
Another great episode, Hector. I've enjoyed my time speaking with you. I'm glad we're back doing uh, after a couple of weeks off. Again, guys, uh, the schedule is going to be a little little off for for a little for a few weeks, uh, but we'll get things going. Uh, download, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Hector, I've enjoyed our conversation. Hell yeah, brother! It's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, big shout out to the audience again for supporting us, and uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, from, you know, for, for work with me here over the last year and a half to, to make this podcast a really cool podcast, a really cool project. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure. Big shout out to Naxo for supporting us and, and making this a reality. Uh, when Chris and I first talked about the podcast, it was all theoretical. Hey, what if we just get on the microphone and just talk? Uh, unfortunately, even doing that costs money. So I want, to make, I want to give a big shout out to Naxo for helping us with that and supporting it and sponsoring this podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Heck. Cheers. Cheers.